old-fashioned cop who preferred working the streets and making arrests to taking tests toward promotion. He was the closest thing New York had to a dirty Harry. This is One Tough Podcast on the OG Podcast Network. Here's your host, Bo Deedle. Welcome to One Tough Podcast. I'm joined here, like always, by Carlo. Good to I, be here. Uh, today, I'm really pleased. A real hero to me. We're uh, having our uh, first interview with, I say first because maybe we'll have him back because he's a very interesting guy, FBI counterintelligence operative, security expert, speaker, author, Eric O'Neill, he just published a book called The Gray Day, which uh, we're happy to say is going to be coming out in paperbacks. So when you're sitting on a beach, you could buy it and really, and really read something that's very interesting. It's not a Hollywood movie. This is a real life effort that occurred during the 1990s. And uh, we're going to talk about that. And this has to do with one of the, the biggest targeted persons who was a Russian, uh, he was a Russian, what would we call him? Dalma Moller, a spy. Spy, I like spy, yeah. But he actually was an FBI agent that was supposed to, he was like a counter spy. He was supposed to be working for us when he was spying on us. And uh, I'd like to I like to start from the beginning, Eric. Let's give a little foundation. Why the FBI? Why, why did you go into the FBI? Right. It's, it's, a, it's a long answer, and I'm going to try to give you the abbreviated answer, Bo. And by the way, it's great to be on the podcast. I love your podcast, and it's good to get an opportunity to speak as a former and current in what I do, investigator, to talk to someone who understands investigations, which is a science that so few people seem to get. I joined the FBI because I didn't go to the Naval Academy. That's the short answer. I was supposed to go. I ended up going to Auburn University. I fell in love with Auburn University, and I stayed, graduated, uh, then came back to Washington, D.C., and worked as a consultant and just wasn't happy. I wanted to do something more. I wanted to serve my country. I wanted to do something that makes a difference, which is what you do when you're in your 20s. Yeah. Uh, so I applied. I applied to the FBI, the DEA, the NSA, the Secret Service, the CIA, every acronym I could find <laughs> back then. You, and, didn't uh, quick, the, you didn't go into the service then? I, I didn't, no. And I always regretted that. I come from a long history of uh, O'Neill's and uh, my mother's family, Jamelis, who, who served in, uh, in the Navy primarily, but also my grandfather on the Italian side. I'm half Irish, half Italian. Well, I'm half served Italian, in the half Army. German. But we have another wonderful friend of mine, another O'Neill, that uh, popped the head off uh, that big Bin Laden creepo. There you uh, go. Robert O'Neill. Rob O'Neill. Yeah, yeah, he's a good exactly. friend of mine from Fox, too. But please, they, go ahead. So then yeah, you and, took all the tests, and who called you first? Right. So I, I did. I went I went through all the battery of tests for a, a number of different services, and the FBI called me first to give me my Quantico date. So I said yes, and the next day I heard from the DEA recruiter, DEA recruiter, Drug yeah. Enforcement Agency, who was desperate to get me to come on board there, and I have never heard a guy curse more than that guy when he found out the FBI <laughs> well, got me by me. one day. Yeah. <laughs> So I joined the FBI, and I joined the FBI. Uh, I was 22 at the time, so I was too young to go to special agents class. You had to be 25 back then. But they asked me to join a group at the FBI called the Investigative Specialists, what we call the ghosts, 
who were back then classified. So it was a completely undercover. You go to the academy, you get a shield and credentials. Uh, the only difference to, between them and the agents is you don't make arrests. Uh, and I think the pay is a lot less. Uh, and primarily what we did is we investigated spies and terrorists. So we did they set you up? Did they set you up with a, another identity? Because in the NYPD, and you know, I'm a retired detective, in the NYPD, we used to have where the guys would go into the academy. They pull them right out of the academy. This is during the 70s. We had the uh, Black Liberation Army. We had the students for the Democratic Society. We had all these splinter groups. And when they saw someone like Young, that they could, they pulled it right out of the academy. They gave him a different identity. You were not signified as a cop. In other words, you weren't a NYPD person. You had a whole other identity. Is that how they set you up to? In the spy game, we call that a legend. That's the technical term for that complete different identity you get. There were times when you could use a legend or would need to be under a legend. Um, Primarily, I worked under a code name. I wasn't known even within the FBI. I was never known to my targets, and that was very important. If you were burned by a target, you either couldn't work that target or if it was very serious, then you couldn't work anymore. And you ended up spending your time uh, away from the field, not operational anymore. As an And where did you get so. your check? You, your check was mailed to you? Oh, I, I worked. I was an FBI employee. I got it directly deposited into my bank account, just like everyone else. Uh huh. So you never really had to show up anywhere. That was directly deposited. Now, what if uh, you know? Because we all know about who your main target was, and a lot of the listening audience doesn't understand. This is about Robert Hansen, who right. was an FBI agent, supposedly working in the Russian squad. I think actually, right? Yeah. So. Robert Hansen was and has been described as the worst, certainly the worst FBI, uh, the worst spy in FBI's history, but quite possibly the worst spy in U.S. history. He spent 22 years spying for the Russians, and he was an FBI agent responsible for counterintelligence. That means countering the spying activities of Russia. So he was supposed to find the Russian spies. But he was indeed a Russian spy. So there was a point in his career where he was tasked to find himself, which is the first pl- best place to be if you're a spy. So for 22 years, the FBI and the entire intelligence community in the United States had been on the hunt for this mole that we knew was in the intelligence community, but we just couldn't find him or her. We didn't even know if it was a guy or a gal. We didn't know where this person was. Well, what was some of the, what was some of the, you know, without reading your book, which I have to admit, I didn't read it yet, but a call, you order it up, pay full price. I'll read it uh, over the summer. But what was some of the, what was some of the uh, direct factors that made the FBI believe that would, did they send some erroneous information out where you knew it was coming back from them? That's what I would do. A number of things that were happening throughout, particularly the 80s. So in the mid-80s, there was what we call the year of the spy. And during that year, we lost all of our assets working for us in Russia. That meant that uh, they were either being killed, uh, they were being terminated basically by the Russian government or by the Soviet government, or they were being arrested and sent to prison and disappeared. So all of the Russians, the Soviets, who were working for the United States, for the FBI and the CIA, all of our most highly classified people were getting disappeared by the Russian government. So and that, that usually means that you have a mole. Plus operations we were running that we had invested millions and millions of dollars in time and, and entire careers in were failing. 
and there was no explanation for it other than there is a highly placed mole here in the United States that's handing this information over to the Russians. Wow. And so, in other words, was Hansen actually in charge uh, at any time of these moles that we had in Russia? Was he in charge of that? He knew their identities, yes. So wow. he was giving their names up. And the two individuals that we, that we could prove that he gave up and were killed uh, were, uh, were given the death penalty in Russia for being traitors. Uh, he gave up because he felt that they could possibly uh, tell the FBI that the mole was in the FBI. Wow. Now, was there any of Americans that were killed because of Hansen's uh, activity? No, not, that information, if that happened, that never came out. But no, there's no evidence that an American. So these were Russian moles that we had spies in Russia who were Russian who were reporting back to us. Right. So these were people in the Soviet Union who were very high placed intelligence and military officials who didn't believe in the communist nonsense and were helping America uh, because they believed in us. So these were our patriots in a way who were Russian citizens, but were working for the United States who were helping us. And by losing the intelligence that they were giving us, it put us on a very bad footing in that immense Cold War we were fighting with the Soviet Union. Wow, this to me is so damn interesting. We've had over 60 podcasts and on podcasts, we've had some interesting people. We had the guy that was running the, the Contra thing back with the... With oh, the, Ron Contra, yeah. Yeah, with the whole Contra. What was his name? Uh, Rick Ross. But well, who was the guy? Uh, the Colonel, Oliver. Yeah, Oliver North. North. Yeah, so Oliver North. We've, we've had some interesting stuff, but this to me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a detective and I'm still a detective my whole life. This is so interesting to me about how you have... Someone at a high rank. What was his rank, Hanson? Was he a uh, was he a high rank? Was he a G what? Oh, I, I can't remember his, his GS level, but I, at one point he was a supervisory special agent. Oh, he was he a supervisor, section chief. Yeah, he was way up there. And wow. Was, so, when we caught him, he was about to hit his twenty five year retirement. Holy shit! Now, how was he being compensated by the Russians? So the way that this would work is. One of the things that saved him, that kept the FBI from ever learning about him, was he didn't tell the Russians who he was. Typically, a spy is recruited, so an American is recruited by the Russians, and the Russians tell him all the protocols. This is how we'll work. This is how we'll communicate. They know who he is. Yeah. He volunteered his services by sending a letter to the Russian consulate saying, hey, I'd like to work for you guys, but I'm not going to tell you who I am. Never gave him his name, and always let them think that he was in the CIA. So they thought it was a CIA asset. So the way he would get paid is he would take secrets, like a bundle of secrets, he'd steal them from the FBI, and he would wrap them in trash bags and packing tape, and he would put them under a footbridge in Vienna, Virginia. Wow. Then on his way out, he would set what's called a signal on the Foxstone Park sign right outside that park with a piece of tape, and then he'd go home. And the Russian intelligence officer would know that at certain times during the year, he should drive out. He would spend eight or plus hours just driving around, making sure that a team of ghosts like me wasn't on him, just by happenstance. And then when he felt completely clean, or as we say, black in the business, he would drive by that sign. And if he saw the tape, he would know there are secrets. But then he would go home. And then the next day... The Russians would send out everybody just to make sure that surveillance wasn't on that one person who was going to go to that park and recover that drop. That's called a dead drop in the business. 
Then wow. the Russians would go set another signal somewhere that was on Hansen's route to work. So Hansen would drive by, see this another piece of tape on a telephone pole, and say, I'm going to get paid. And then he would go to a different park and lift up a platform and collect $50,000 that the Russians would leave for him. And he'd how, make how much know, 50 he, or so at a time. Now, $50,000 cash is, is pretty sizable. So it had yeah. to be in the bank. Now, how much do you guys estimate that he collected? He, uh, under $2 million. So wow. in 22 years, he didn't make all that much for spying. Now, of course, he also probably got diamonds, another thing that it's hard to quantify. Uh, and, of course, the Russians always say that, hey, we're – we're putting fifty thousand dollars in, in a hole in the ground for you to collect, and we're also putting fifty thousand dollars in your account. That's you know like this yeah. in Moscow that you get if you ever have to escape. Right now, the thing is that as far as this information that Hansen was given up, it was about obviously about the moles that were in Russia. Any other information that he got his hands on that they were requesting other stuff, technology or anything like that? Oh, absolutely. He was one of the most devastating spies in U.S. history because of how he stole. So one big theme in the book Grey Day is the evolution of espionage, how it's really changed today from people putting stuff in a hole in the ground to all these cyber attacks you're seeing in cyber espionage, computer systems rather than recruiting people. Hansen was at the cutting edge because he stole from computer systems. He was actually the first spy to drop floppy disks, you know, the old way we used to transmit data uh, in these packages. And because he was able to hack into computer systems at the FBI, he was able to get into other agencies, particularly when he was on task forces. So he stole nuclear secrets. So he could make believe he was doing an investigation and he had that accessibility to get into these top secret areas because I'm sure he must have had a top secret level clearance, right? Oh, certainly. He was way high up in, in the security clearance levels and he would get on task forces with other groups or agencies and then he said i even need to know this stuff so he would steal the information wow so, he so was... for example bo he gave up uh nuclear secrets where we would fire what we would do if the soviet union fired their nukes at us where we would send the president and, the vice president and and everyone if the attack happened um so all of our protocols for a nuclear war which also you know if there's a catastrophic event or why don't we just attack, kill him why don't we just put a bullet in his friggin' head so Hansen, well, here's the thing, um, and, and this is something that I try to really explain in Gray Day. The real purpose of the investigation wasn't just to catch or punish Hansen. Certainly we had to catch him, but it was to catch him in a way that we could put pressure on him to tell us everything he did so uh -huh. we could fix it. The fact that we had an FBI agent at this high level who had dismantled the FBI for 22 years meant the FBI had serious flaws. And we had to correct those flaws. So it was more important to get him to talk than to yeah. put him to death. Yeah, I guess if we whacked him, we wouldn't have got the information, Carlo. You know, yeah. sometimes, I mean, we could have tortured him a little bit, put electric uh, outlets on his nipples or something. <laughs> but in <laughs> reality, spent, we didn't have to do that, I guess. He spent years and years in interrogation. In debriefing, yeah. commissions put together to interrogate him. And now he's in Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. And I would be honest with you, I would rather be dead than be there. Well, Just you want to know something? When I was a detective here in New York, I used to hang guys off buildings, fourth story. I never lost, 
lost anybody. But if uh-huh. a cop got killed and I had to question a guy, I used to hold him off the fourth story. I could talk about it now. I never lost anybody. I could hold with one hand, too. But, I mean, on a serious level, this is really, really serious stuff. I mean, this is devastating information that he truly was giving out over there. I just can't even believe, even from our short time of speaking here, what kind of uh, information was given by this guy. Yeah, that's just the tip of the spear. And, by the way, before I forget to tell you, my uh, grandfather, uh, who had served in the Army, was a New York cop. He walked the beat in uh, Queens in Jamaica, New York. What years? Uh, yeah, absolutely. What years? He since passed. Oh, God, this would have been years and years ago. Well, I'm old. Um, I'm old. Well, I came on in 70. So I came on in 70. I'm old. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. But, uh, well, cahoots to your grandpa there, right? I may have known him along the line, but uh, it's it's a good group. Today they're being destroyed by this big bird mayor, de Blasio. Horrible, horrible, horrible. Right. But let's, let's get back to this happen. interesting thing because I'm getting so this let great. Let me tell you one more thing that he yeah. gave up. Uh, and this story blows people's minds because, one, it's a really cool operation that the FBI ran with the CIA, with the NSA. So FBI and NSA got together and said, we got to spy on these Russians. we got to figure out what they're doing. This is in the height of the Cold War, and uh, the Soviet Union had just built their embassy here in D.C. on Tunla Road. So the FBI and the NSA get together, and they dig a tunnel under the road between uh, this house that they bought and the Russian embassy. And at the end of the tunnel, they put a listening device, and we could hear everything the embassy was saying. So can you believe that? Wow. All the secret stuff they're saying we're listening to and translating. The problem was even before the tunnel was finished, Hansen had given it up. Wow. So they knew that we were listening. So well, what you, the Russians did is give us fake information for years. You know, Jim Fox, the assistant director who died, Jim was in charge of this Russian thing. When they, 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 I think the embassy is still on 67th Street in New York City. And yeah. we had old – he was telling me – we used to go out to, and drink a lot. Uh, we used to drink a lot of Smirnoff. And he would tell me stories about, you know, when they were watching them over there with the e- eavesdropping devices and all that. Obviously, anything important, they knew everybody was listening, so they wouldn't even talk. But right. uh, it very, very interesting in this respect. When when you think about it, being an American, what this guy, he first of all, he elevated our, himself up to one of the highest positions in the FBI. And we know what's going on today with the advent of what's happening with President Trump and what happened with schmuck and shuck and all that crap. It just hurts me because the agents that are out there, 99% of the hardworking agents are being smeared by these higher level schmuck political idiots where the FBI should never be politicalized in any shape or way or form. That's our police of our government. And it hurts me of the hardworking agents that are out there who have to be smeared by these uh, well, idiots. That's the only word I can use. So what's your feeling about the FBI being smeared like this? Yeah, I'm going to agree with you. Uh, and I was in the FBI a long time. And, and in, in that time, I could tell you, especially being a field operative, the bureaucracy drove me nuts. And I understood it was an agency, and so there was a lot of bureaucrats. But we always felt that tension between the people at the top who have to deal with the politicians and the crazy things they'd come up with and the real stuff that we had to do in the field. At the end of the day, The FBI are a team of investigators, an agency of investigators, and investigators must always remove themselves from the surrounding things that provide tension to the investigation. 
And the way that I describe it is an investigator has no room for bias. If you bring preconceived notions or your own ideas into an investigation, you've corrupted the heart of the investigation. You have to go in as a blank slate and just find the facts. And I feel like in our political craziness today, the FBI fell into that quagmire of making decisions that they shouldn't have made and, um, and getting away from the pure heart of what the FBI is supposed to do, conduct investigations, find the facts. And hand those facts over to the civilian political decision makers uh, in politics who use those facts. Uh, yeah, before we talk world. about before we talk about what you do now, Eric. But just to finish up with Gray Day. Now, yes. all our listening audience out there, there was a film that was uh, made called uh, Breach. Yes. And uh, were you involved with that film at all? I was. So a long time ago, when I left the FBI, I wanted to write a book. Yeah, but by the time I got permission to write the book from were the FBI, still there were already were there were already st- six books. So uh, my brother, my brother David, had who was an actor in Hollywood at the time and a writer, had the idea. Let's just make a movie, and I never thought it would happen, but it snowballed. Apparently, uh, Hollywood. It was right after September 11th. They wanted a hero story. This was a good one. It was a true life story. Um, uh, you know, I sold the rights to Universal, um, and I got to work directly with the, the two writers, Adam Mazur and Bill Rotko, who both, by the way, come from New York, and, and then Billy Ray, who is the director and another writer. You know, I got to work with all these talented writers on the screenplay. Who played you? Myself who played you? Ryan Philippi. Because you look like my friend Bobby Carnavale. You, know, <laughs> you do look like Bobby Carnavale, and we did vinyl together, the HBO series about the rock and roll. But you look right, a lot yeah. like Bobby Carnavale. So if I was casting, I would have had Bobby play you. But well, Ryan uh, was pretty good, and he's still he's still a really good friend. So I was very flattered that a uh, an actor of his caliber was playing me and and portraying my first real face to the world. Right. Yeah, you, well, you were you were a non-face. I, I also there was there ever any threats? You know, was there ever any any direct threats to you by the Russians at all? Did, no, any- and you know that's you know the Russians can be extremely brutal against their own traitors. If you defect, then you're you know Putin is coming after you, and we've seen how he's he's killed and poisoned his way through everyone who he doesn't like. But I was doing my job, and I was catching a U.S. traitor. And so to the Russians, they squeezed all of the blood out of the stone they were going to get from Hansen. Yeah. And he was about to retire anyway, so yeah, they by, didn't need him anymore. You know, by, by whacking you, Eric, that would have done anything. It would only made them look like small that they are. But in reality, it had to go through your head. You know, when you, you had to look at your rearview mirror a little bit, right, Eric? Oh, I'm always looking at my rearview Me mirror. Too. The training never leaves. You know, ask my wife. She drives her crazy when, <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're late to get to a party and I pull off the, the beltway and she's like, what are you doing? And I say, <laughs> I think a car took two turns with us. You know, I got to make Me sure. Too. That I've I'm always, and I will never sit in a restaurant. We have dinner. We get to New York. I'll never sit with my back to the door. Yeah, your back and is I do carry, to the wall. and I do yeah. carry a nine millimeter when I go to the store. I don't, I put a lot of, people away and getting out of jail so you know it's always the back of our mind erica one quick question uh there's a very uh tense scene in the film and i'm sure you describe in the book as well where uh you had to uh remove uh hansen's palm pilot 
and bring it to the tech people, download the information, and then bring it back. And you did, there was like a momentary confusion where you didn't know which pocket of his briefcase it was in. And you yep. felt like if, if he would have found out, he might have just shot you right there. So can you tell us about that moment? Cause that's, yeah, uh, let, me, let me tell the story. That, that's my most famous story. And it's <laughs> also how we caught Robert Hansen. We had these pro- this problem with Hansen. He, uh, he was such a good spy that even though at the very end of his career, uh, when we were about to give up on this whole mole hunt, uh, a source came and sold us a file of information that pointed the finger directly at Hansen. So we knew that this was probably our spy. But we didn't have enough to put him away for life, and we certainly didn't have enough to put him away in a way that would get him to talk to us. So we had to catch him red-handed. So we built this whole office for him in headquarters, promoted him to run the office, and it was going to be looking at computer systems and basically building cybersecurity for the FBI. They looked around, and they, they found the only other guy in the FBI, I think, who knew how to turn a computer on and, and hunt a spy, and that happened to be me, even though I was way too young for this and was never trained to do this sort of investigation. So they threw me in the office with him, kind of shook everything up, and hoped that I would come out all right and find the evidence they needed. So fast forward through this whole crazy investigation. That makes so hold on, hold on a second. Day. Hold on. That means you were actually, before you locked him up, you were in the office with him? Yeah, I spent all this time investigating him as his assistant in an office. As a junior non-FBI agent, just a cybersecurity guy that worked for the FBI. Yeah, well, I was none. Yeah, exactly. So I was he knew that I was a investigative specialist. He knew I was a ghost, but I lied and I told him that I only worked counter terror targets. And I was really interested in the counterintelligence side, even though I had spent most of my time spy hunting. Um but I knew how to turn a computer on. I know how to program. I mean, I was always kind of a hacker when I was younger. So I could sell doing this job. And they thought that Hanson would never believe the FBI would send a 26-year-old you know, kid at that point in after him. Uh, so my job was really, one, make him feel comfortable and that this is real. Two, find out if he is the spy we're after. And I did that very quickly. And then three, find the information that will let us catch him. Well, which information? Which information was the key to capturing him? Which it was his. It was his Palm Pilot. So they they knew because we had we we felt that he was ready to make a drop. Like all of our intelligence were pointing that he was ready to make a next his last drop of secrets to the Russians. So we had to catch him in the act of doing that. And so we needed the information that we're gonna was gonna tell us when he'd do it or what he would do. Uh, and here's the thing, and you understand this, Bo. I know you do, because bad guys, right? When you're investigating them, you look for clues, but you find that they have routines. Yeah. And normally, when they have a routine, it's to protect something or protect information or keep themselves from being noticed by law enforcement. And his was that he had this Palm Pilot that he treated like his baby, but he kept it in his left back pocket. And anytime he sat down, he put it in his bag. And when he stood back up, he put it right back in his pocket, and he never forgot once. And so we had to break that routine because I said, I have to get that away from him. So we had uh, Richard Garcia, who was a section chief who worked on the floor, and an assistant director come in unannounced, slap $20 on Hanson's desk, and say, you and us, the shooting range right now, I'll bet you that 20, five targets out of five, we'll beat you. And uh, – and Hansen was upset and annoyed. He didn't like anyone who was above him in the chain of command. He didn't like getting interrupted. He really didn't like either of these people either, so he declined. 
And the ADIC, the assistant director, looks at him and says, that wasn't a request. And now he's furious. But, I mean, he can't scream and yell at his ADIC, right? Yeah. So he grabs his firearm and holsters it, and he grabs his ear protection, eye protection, all the crap you need to go and shoot properly down at a range, and forgets for the first time to grab that Palm Pilot. Wow. He's very excited. Um, cause you know, in the movie breach, Ryan Phillippe does this all the first time in real life. It took a bunch of tries to get this right. And I grabbed the palm and I grabbed a floppy disk and I grabbed the data card. All three things ran down three flights of steps, burst into a tech room where we had these guys just waiting in case I ever got this stuff and they start copying it. How long did it take you to download it? As, well, as they're downloading it right in this tech room, which took forever because it was all encrypted. I get a text on – it was a page, right? Back then we had pages. Pager, we yeah. texting. But it was an alphanumeric pager. You remember those things? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it was SkyTel alphanumeric yeah. two-way pager. So the text says, out of pocket, coming to you. And I, I knocked on that door and I told the guys, I said, I need the stuff. Give me the stuff. And they said, we're almost done. I had timed that it took nine minutes if you ran all the way from the shooting range up to the office. So I knew I had a little bit of time, but not much. So I'm watching my clock sweating. They finally give me the stuff, hand it to me and say, run. I bolt up those three flights of steps, got into his office, felt really good about myself. Like I've won. Then I kneeled down in front of his bag and I realized three devices, four equal pockets, and I have no clue what pockets I pulled this stuff out of. And as I'm sitting there trying to remember, I hear him coming through the outer door. Wow, that's exciting, man. You yeah, can't even so, write a movie script to, to, with the truth. There's nothing better than the truth. There's nothing better than the truth. So I just dropped all three things in the bag, you know, took my best guess. You know, in those old tests, I just circled C on the sand, Scantron. I would have said, I would have I had a little backup plan. Like I would have had one of my agents bump into him and, and start a fist fight or some shit. <laughs> well, <laughs> nobody, nobody knew, you know, there was no time. There was yeah. no way to contact anybody. I, I wow. mean, I'm in a skiff. There's no communications. Man, so, that, that, that's exci- this is exciting. And I tell all my listeners out there, we got 35,000 or whatever we got. Get this book, please. Gray Day or rent the movie because this is a true, true espionage story that, that is so exciting. Just listening to it. I can't wait to read it. I tell you the <laughs> truth. I'm going to buy the paperback. You don't mind, right? Yeah. You'll learn a lot too because, yeah. you know, it's not just, it's not just the story of how we caught Hanson because, and that is a first person narrative, but it's also the evolution of espionage and how it's changed over the years. It's, you know, uh, what became a big theme of the movie too is, is what it was doing to me and my wife and my marriage working undercover. It's hard to work undercover. Mm -hmm. Um, You bring all that crap home. Oh, the family, the family suffers from it. It definitely, it's a, you know, unrewarding. I have a lot of my friends, matter of fact, some FBI agent went deep, deep undercover with organized crime in that. And it's, 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 your life is disturbed. Almost as bad as running for mayor of New York City for two years. That sucked too against yeah, Big yeah, Bird I can believe you. that. Yeah. Right. Uh, so now let's go on to your video. When did you leave the FBI? What year? So I left the FBI in 2001. We caught Hanson in February of 2001 and I left by May. Did you get a pension? Oh, no, I wasn't in the FBI long enough for a pension. Wow. But. OK, so then you decided you founded the Georgetown town group. So what do you do well, at the Georgetown group? So there were a couple steps between then. So after I left the FBI, I while I was in the FBI, while I was working this case, 
one thing that made it real stressful is I was at law school over at George Washington University. Law school also? Yeah, so I was going to school at night and working this investigation during the day and just trying to balance everything. I was also a newlywed. So it was like the wrong time to try to do all of this. <laughs> and I, uh, but I did. I, I, I just didn't sleep. That's how I did it. And uh, I, I was about to finish law school. So I decided to leave the FBI and see what I could do with uh, my legal career. So I left uh, the FBI, finished law school, and went to go work for one of the huge law firms. Um, it's now called DLA Piper. Oh, yeah, I know very well. For years, yeah, doing national security law and government contracts law and government affairs, so government-related stuff that I understood. And after five years of that, I decided to start my own business, um, and that is the Georgetown Group, which is investigations. We do high-level corporate diligence-type investigations, which is back to that fun stuff I was doing at the FBI. I'm also a ridiculously prolific public speaker. I love public speaking. I love getting in front of crowds. I fly all over the world to do that. And I work for a a nonprofit charity that does humanitarian work all over the world called Global Communities. Well, you sound like you're busy. That's how I still practice law. Yeah, we start. I started my company uh, 34 years ago when I retired. We do a lot of corporate investigations worldwide, also. And uh, one of the areas that I was, I'm involved in right now. I bought the uh, keystroke encryption patents, so uh-huh. we own a keystroke. Uh, three of them. This company had them. We bought them for nine million dollars. They weren't doing anything. I introduced them to First Data, to Aon, and to uh, a Verizon. Matter of fact, you download software. It's not the win all because we know our hackers are going to get in one way or another. People open emails and all that stuff. But what this does, even if they get in there, they can't see when you keystroke and what they, what it is. It goes right down to the kernel. It's pretty interesting stuff. Simple. It's 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 a lot. It's very simple, but yet it's another tool and you. You know yourself in cybersecurity, you'll never stop hackers. They'll get in right. one way or the other. But this now is a tool where once they get in, they can't see what you're doing. So it's just another piece of a another component. Piece of the puzzle. Yeah, yeah, so I'm involved with that. We do we do a lot of uh, cybersecurity ourselves. But again, in the investigations, like I always say. If I'm investigating a CEO for stealing or if I'm investigating a murder, as a matter of fact, we just broke that case in Kentucky with the federal witness that was killed along uh, uh, with his wife and the next door neighbor by the American airline pilot, right. the first officer. They uh, he, he was able to find top secret stuff that this army guy had in his house. The army guy was assaulting his wife and the kid. Three years after the murders, they had nothing. So we got involved with him and a couple of our guys who are experts in the ballistic field. He used a Glock. And a lot of people don't know what a Glock, you know, you don't get the rifling, but you, when you get the primer hit, it's a definitive, it's a definitive identification on a primer hit. We were able to get it to ATF and we lined it up with his gun that was seized the next day out of his safe with a warrant and we were able to get him locked up on the three murders. But I mean, I, I, I enjoy detective work, but a lot of times common sense comes into play and you know that. Yes. And it's, it's exciting, uh, have still doing detective work. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I, I think I missed it a lot when I was 
practicing with the big law firm and I wanted to get back to it and met up with my three partners now and the four of us are still running the company. And it's, just, it's, just four years? Well. I mean, how, how can you multiply that into, I mean, how, like there was a company out of Colorado, had great guys in there from the NSA and all that, but there were seven of them. How do you multiply that into corporation? You can't take that much business. You don't really have a, a, a download of software or anything like that, right? Right. No. So we, we keep it small. We have uh, dedicated clients. We are careful about who we bring on. We're very boutique, boutique yeah. because we want to provide boutique. That I like that. partner level I like that. service boutique. to everyone. You're boutique. Yeah. I like boutique. boutique. Yeah, because you're never going to get – when you work with us, you're not going to get some kid that just got out of college and uh, you know 12 hours of training doing the investigation. Um, you get a partner who, who rose up in this world and knows what the heck they're doing. Uh, doing the work. So we're a little bit more expensive, but we get it right the first time. You know, I'm involved in a couple of cases now with this Cambridge analytics and all that. You're oh, very, yeah. You're very familiar with that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been following that. We're, we're involved with a couple of cases on that where, where, you know, that, that has come into play. But as far as, as far as what's going on with Ru- Russia, you know, this in Internet Research Agency, we're all worrying about the next election. We know they were in. They know they breached in. What's your feelings with that? I think we're going to be in a lot of trouble in 2020 unless we do some better work. The midterm elections where now the RNC got attacked, remember? Uh, and I think I think that a bunch of Democrats also got attacked and successfully, you know, taught us in 2018 that we're still not ready and we don't have much time to get prepared the russians are going to be coming very hard at us in 2020 and uh trying to do the same thing that they did in 2016 make americans angry at americans well we know one thing we have San, the stanford, uh, stanford we have mit we have the greatest technology minds in the world in the private sector like yourself i mean the federal government has to put all these brains together because when they built the internet we know one thing they didn't build it with uh who who built it that guy the vice president guy gore when gore (laughs) built the internet they never built the internet thinking about security it was just built and reality a lot of openings were there hence now with what's going on against with the hacking and all that why don't we utilize the private sector like brains like your guys have right. and develop a, 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 a fail safe as, as well as we can technology to stop this? I mean, well, to me, is- I would if I was the president, I'd say, Mr. President, and I know the president 40 years. Why don't we use the private sector, bring all the great minds together, work together with this? Yeah, I think that there are a couple problems. One, you know, in politics, the, the DNC, if we just look at 2016, had terrible cybersecurity. They, even though they were warned by the FBI that they were going to be attacked, the uh, chairman of the Hillary campaign was using his Google account without any security on that account. Nothing that you could turn on was turned on in order to transact all his business, and they were able to steal the entire account. Um, numerous staffers clicked on spear phishing emails. Those are those fake emails that load malware when you click on it, uh, and, and they were corrupted that way. The Russians rented a server in Arizona and launched attacks from there just so it didn't – you know, their their firewall filters didn't think it was coming from a foreign country. I mean everything that could go wrong went wrong because they weren't prepared, and we need to be prepared. And yeah. that should have been a wake-up call. And I – you know, I, I work with a company, Carbon Black, which is one of the top cyber companies. 
Uh, I do strategy for them. If everyone just bought that solution, we'd be fine. Carbon black, huh? Yeah. You know, you know I was the spokesman for RSA with uh, uh, Art Cornovello. Uh We used to have the uh, uh, cybersecurity conference in San Francisco. They, they still have it every single yeah, year. Yeah, and I'm, uh, I'm there every year. Yeah. And Yuron, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Yuron, he then became the uh, CEO of RSA, but then RSA was bought up by Dell with EMC with that whole takeover. Mm-hmm. But they would, I mean, they had the brains out there. But I just can't believe the, the federal government with all the private brains like your guys. I mean, if I was the president, I would have a whole symposium of the greatest security minds that say, look, at the federal government's going to pay you grants. Yeah. Stop this from happening. Well, simple. let's talk about – so, Bo, let's talk about some positive stuff the government's doing, right? Because right. I have been excited about a couple things they're doing. Um, the first is that the administration has unshackled the military. So we we have our kinetic military, right? Our guns and our planes and tanks and whatnot. But there is the real war now today isn't going isn't fought that way. It never will be fought that way again. It's cyber attacks, and we're constantly fighting this attack. All of the branches of government of military now are building their cyber commands. Um, the U, the Naval Academy right in Annapolis, right around the corner from me, just built this beautiful building for their new to train uh, new. Um, officers in cyber command uh remember over in the 2018 uh election during that election the midterm election on the day of the election we shut down the russians ability in their internet research agency to access the internet so they wow. launch all their nonsense we, we shut them off so the we're internet. doing that like a counterattack. we're doing counterattacks. Yeah, we're counterattacking. Our military is counterattacking. We are fighting the cyber war right now, and we're doing well. Uh, you know, Iran was was uh, puffing their chest up. Uh, you know, during one day, military launched an attack against them, a cyber attack that shut their ability to fire missiles. Right. Away. I remember when we shut down their computers. Also, yeah, they started they winding down. NSA sending an attack that shut that spun their centrifuges up right. just fast enough to destroy all of them. Well, I'm so gl- I'm, we can I'm, do this stuff. We well, you know what? I'm that. glad to hear there are positive things. So it doesn't look as grim as I thought. There are positive things. Now, part of my thing, too, is obviously I'm always remembering 9-11. I was down there that day, and I'll mm-hmm. never forget it. I don't become, become uh, complacent at all. And with the advent of these, uh, with the ISIS and with the trash that they put on the internet i always said why can't we just shut it down why can't we enable it from being put on where people can't access it i'm sure we have the technology to shut that shit down it's difficult so we get into a whole freedom of speech issue and what is freedom excuse me what's not excuse me i'm gonna curse now fuck (laughs) freedom of speech because i remember when 9-11 happened and we had what was the law that they passed uh patriot act patriot act and you could go on my phone you could do what i want because i will never forget that day and it's going to come again unless people realize because i worry about the homegrown people that are getting psychopathically analyzed by these idiots from my ISIS online. And yeah. I mean, if, unless we stop that, we're going to have more problems. Well, that's a lot, Bo. Uh, there, I, I think there are a couple of things here. One, we needed to continue to destroy ISIS wherever they were in the world, which we've yeah. been doing a pretty good job of to, to keep them from even be able being able to monkey around on social media. Two, yeah, there's been a lot of work that 
that has been tried, but I don't think that the social media companies have done a great job of, of getting rid of those accounts when they find them, uh, particularly when others flag them because that's what they've been relying on. Uh, the government needs to tell them that this account has to go and they need to make it go and not let them crop up. But the problem is you shut down an account and they just create another account and yeah. they pop right back up. It's hard to find out where they are. We're just not designed to stop this sort of thing. Well, I think so do you I think, regulate the social media or not? And, but I, I mean, as yeah. far as brains like what you have in your in your company with the Georgetown Group and all the technologies that we're well aware of it, I think eventually we can do something because we know Google and Microsoft and everything. If you say something, you do something wrong. Facebook and all that crap, they're able to take you down if you say something wrong. So yeah. why can't we take them down if there's any kind? of a terrorist overview of any kind of a terrorist uh, action no i'm i'm all for that i think yep. that i think that there isn't enough of a metric to do it i don't think they're doing a good enough job I, honestly i'm less worried about the uh the terrorists that are on there trying to recruit because i think we've started to really get on top of that that's easier to find what's harder to find are the russians and the iranians and the others who, who's our uh, biggest threat false information who's it's our really biggest threat eric What's that? Who's our biggest threat, Russia, Iran, or China? I got asked that question at a conference yesterday, and uh, I had to think for a second. Right China, now, I say. In cybersecurity, right, for cyber attacks, I just put Russia ahead of China. They're a 1A oh. and 1B, and they flip-flop depending on the week. Column A, you mean that, column A, column Iran, B, right? Then North Korea. Column A, column B, right? <laughs> yeah, they're just they're just terrible, but in different ways. China mostly wants to steal information with us, and they're incredibly successful. Here's how I explain it: China wants to steal; they want to farm us, right? Our technology, our innovation, uh, learn about our economy, make their economy stronger. Russia wants to harm us. So well, you know at what? Attacking our critical infrastructure. They're looking at. Um, driving that wedge of political division deeper. They want to mess with our elections. Uh, they're, they're all over our social media trying to fool us. They want to steal technology. They spy on us, which is why they kind of went ahead of but China. If, very but recently. if you look if you look at the history of the last 50, 75 years in China, the whole doctrine, I mean, there was, I think, something like 40 million people murdered, Chinese people murdered by the government over oh, the yeah, they're, they're a brutal My point uh, is dictatorial regime. They also have this view of taking over the world. And what better way to take over the world is through cyber, you know, cyber, cyber conquest. Now, you know yourself, you look at our new F-35, the Chinese has the duplicate. You look at every piece of our military equipment. Right. They've knocked it off. The thing that's scary to me is they actually have the capability of taking out our Astat satellites in space. You take out your Astat satellites, where's GPS? The plane ain't, our, our military planes won't be able to fly. That's scary to me. And I was well, at know, a. I was at a big GPS, security. Hold on, I was at a big security conference in uh, in Washington, right next to the Pentagon, and it was run. It was not run by RSA. I was invited by uh, by the uh, the military uh, defense companies, and I was a, an observer. And it was a hacking that was done. And the largest guys were there, Boeing. Every one of them. And the thing is that they were able to breach into our system. It was a mock hacking thing. Yeah, right. A red team test. What yeah. was scary is they got through. 
Well, you know what we just learned? So I'm going to switch gears because you said GPS, which has been fascinating me lately because everything relies on it. Remember the old days when we used to have to follow a target and you'd have a map book open in your lap? Yep. These kids today couldn't get couldn't get anywhere that they've driven a hundred times without, you know, using Google Maps on their phone. Uh, the Russians just demonstrated that they can fake GPS. They messed with a couple of our ships at sea who suddenly lost their tracking. Wow! Um, because they're able to hack the satellites and spoof the GPS signal. Oh my um, God! There is a dead zone over Putin's private castle where GPS does not work. Wow. He's, he's just completely blacked out the signal because he doesn't want anyone to be able to find their way there easily or be able to navigate when they're in his dead zone. Wow. Um, What's, boy, things we learned from this. This is, I tell you what, we're going to wrap up a little bit, but we'd love you to come back. But this has been so interesting. Now, Eric, how can we get your book? Where can we find you and your company? Let's give a give sure. some plugs, please. Yeah. So if you want to, uh, if you want to contact me, if you want to hire me to come speak at an event, or if you want to get all the links to buy the book Gray Day, and I hope you do, uh, you can go on my personal website. It's www.ericoneal.net, uh, or you can just Google Eric O'Neill, and I think finally I pop up my picture instead of Ryan Phillippe's. Um, <laughs> Well, you can follow me on Twitter at, at E-O-N-E-I-L-L, that's E-O-N-E-I-L, and I usually answer questions from people uh, there. It's the easiest way. And then well, that, my company is the Georgetown Group. Well, that's great, like that, and I'm going to authorize my partner over here, Carlo, to make contact if you need any kind of support, whether it be physical support or anything. We've been around 34 years, and I'd love to meet with you. Maybe we could do a little synergy. Maybe I can support what you do. Maybe you can support what I do. Yeah, and uh, certainly it could be a very good relationship. Uh, we do something every week with our podcast. We do the punk of the week. Now, what the punk of the week means could be a person, could be a thing, something that bothered you this week really bothered you? Mm -hmm. That's something that really bothered me this week. Ah, God, I'd have to think about it. I've been, I've been so busy traveling around this week. Uh, you know, I think, I, I, I mean, it's, it's probably the obvious thing, but the thing that bothered me, bothers me right now is the sexual trafficking issue with that Epstein case. Oh, and yeah. what's bothering me is less about what the media is reporting, but what the media is not reporting, because I think that what's lost in this case are the victims, are, are you know, these girls that were trafficked. And why aren't we hearing their stories? Why aren't we learning about what happened to them? Why aren't we broadening this out to all these other people who are engaged in this? Wow. It seems like this this very big story that should be undercovering some horrible things is yeah. being made very small, and that just, makes me angry. Just came out in the paper today. This beautiful girl, fourteen years old, this animal uh, raped, and it's just coming out now. And I I don't care where the cards fall. If uh, President Clinton was getting his happy days off on that island, I really don't care. This is a piece of garbage. He should be put back in jail, and that's the end of it. What about you, Carla? What's bothering you this week? I mean, and it's obviously it's a terrible case and uh it's just it's so terrible that it was covered up for so long and you know it should be whoever was involved should definitely be prosecuted and found out and this is a real terrible thing that, that was going on and covered up 
You know, I usually have one, Eric, but I'm going to side with you. That's the thing that pisses me off, picking up that paper, seeing this beautiful young girl. She's 32 years old now. She was 14 years old. And the, and the ones that brought her over, he used to have people over there that recruited him, telling me, you want to be an actress? This guy's rich. Yeah. And the money, I, I, that's my punk of the week. I'd like to punch him right in the face before me he too. gets back in jail. You know, I, I would, I would even take, I would even take a felony breaking his jaw. That's it, Carlo. So what else? How could they find us? Why don't we send? Uh, why don't we send Eric one of our uh, one tough cop uh, t-shirts there? You All know, right. I was in a movie. I was in a movie, well, Goodfellas, and one of my famous lines was after we lock up Henry Hill. And I, who I knew, I grew up with all these punks. Was bye bye, dickhead. So uh, we got great. You did that line. I know that line. I've seen that movie a million times. My no, uh, what was my the main line? Mother's brother. Yeah, my great uncle, uh, Uncle Buddy, was in the uh, was in that movie too. He's well, an extra. He just sits. Oh, really? The table. So. It's just funny. I grew up in Ozone Park with Gotti and Scopo and all these characters with, uh, with Paulie, uh, Savino. Paul Savino plays my other friend that was in it. I actually lock up Jimmy Burke, who was played oh, by De Niro that. on two murders when I was a homicide. I brought him from Allenwood. I knew Jimmy as a kid. We got drunk on the plane. We had those little bottles of scotch. I didn't even have handcuffs on him. We arrived at LaGuardia and my lieutenant says, Deedle, you and your partner drunk. Your prisoner's not handcuffed. He's drunk. I said, this is Jimmy Burke. He was doing life on life on life. So I gave him a couple of pops. But it was a different time. Today, they would be locking me up. But it was a great movie. We've got a big one coming out called The Irishman coming out in the fall with De Niro, Pacino, right. Pesci, Harvey Keitel, Bobby Carnival, Bo Deedle. They gave me a really ah, great plot, and uh, we're looking forward to that. How can they find us, Carl? All right, so you can find us on social media. We're at One Tough Podcast on Twitter. Bo is at Bo Deedle on Twitter and at the Real Bo Deedle on Instagram. Uh, you can email us all your questions, podcast at gmail.com, and we'll see you next week. And again, when are you coming to New York? I'm not not anytime soon because I'm going to take some time this summer. But next time, we'll yeah, well, get let's together. get together. And I thank you so much. One of the most interesting podcasts I've had because you are one interesting guy. God bless you and your family. Got kids? God bless you too. Yeah, I have three kids. Uh, my oldest daughter is 11, and then nine-year-old son and a six-year-old daughter. God bless you. Great family. Cut it off now. That's it. Perfect family. <laughs> okay, thank you, Eric. All right, thank Bye. you very thank much. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Thank you. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.